Hi everybody, it's Jamie, your friendly neighborhood dungeon manager. Before we start the episode, we just want to point out that The Witcher is a show that contains a lot of extreme violence, potentially sensitive themes, and has some visuals that some people might find troubling. And while we try to cover these things as sensitively as possible, sometimes our discussion might delve into some content that some listeners might find troubling. So we just wanted to let you know before we get started, but like I said, we do our best to keep it tasteful and respectful. And now, on to the episode. Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mokel, here with my mutant co-hosts. Yes! I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a monstrous cat that looks really cute, but then I have purple eyes, and once I get around blood, ooh, it's not a pretty picture. Yee, what are you doing to that corpse? <laughs> Don't ask. Ooh, very interesting. But is that the real monster? Who can say? Yeah. No, man is the real monster. Yes. Speaking of which, who are you? Oh, well, I was a... uh, My name is Jack Olander, and I was a mutant, but now I'm Chris Pratt, and I'm normal now. (laughs) (laughs) Not Italian, not a mutant, just normal. No. I'm just Norm. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> it's me, Chris Pratt. <laughs> I can't wait to see normal non-Italian Mario. Psych. <laughs> <laughs> oh, guys. Hey, guys. Do, do we want to emphasize the fact that we're a movie podcast? <laughs> These are our hot takes. Yeah. Well, guys, I am extremely excited this week. You want to know why? I do. Awesome. It's actually a few reasons why I'm extremely excited. The first one is that we have a new patron. Hell yeah. What the what? Our good friend, John Velgus, just joined our Patreon. So we want to give him a shout out and say thanks so much for helping us keep the torches lit here at Castle Satire. Thanks, Velgus. It's awesome! It's great to have you as part of the team. Yeah, you rule. Welcome to the Satirists. And if anyone else wants to join John and all of our other amazing patrons, well, you know what? They can go to patreon.com slash swords and satire, take a look at our different membership tiers, pick one that fits their budget and that has all the stuff that they want to get, and sign up for a monthly donation to your favorite satirists. That sounds pretty hype. And you get access to tons of bonus episodes, and you can vote on a movie we watch each month. That's right. Join the satirist family and feel our profane rituals mutate your DNA into something more and less human. (laughs) And on that note, the other reason I'm excited this week? Oh, it's finally happening. Satire TV makes its triumphant return with the show that started it all for us, The Witcher. That's right. We are beginning season two this week. Oh, yeah. I've been extremely excited to talk about this with you guys, to watch the show with you guys. We've been waiting. The wait is over. We have begun. And this week, we're going to be talking about season two, episode one, A Grain of Truth. That's right. I've been looking forward to this, too. It's super hype. (laughs) And because I didn't mention it earlier, this is Satire TV, where we, instead of talking about a movie like we do every other week, we talk about a TV show. And we follow it episode by episode every other week. And that's what we're doing. We didn't want to start another show. We did like that would be too long because we knew this was coming up. <laughs> and so we did extra movies in October and December and we did 
over the garden wall in between, which was a lot of fun, too. It was awesome. It was great. I'm super glad that we did that. But yeah, we were basically just holding out until The Witcher started. Yeah. So I'm happy. (laughs) And you know what? It's a new year and a new season of The Witcher. What more can we ask for? This is extra special. Coming out on New Year's Day, what could be better? Um, if the world wasn't falling apart. Oh, shit. Jamie with the truth bombs. <laughs> but whatever, we've got Geralt of Rivia to keep us happy and warm and fuzzy. <laughs> By the Netflix fire. <laughs> it was really nice of Geralt to look directly at the camera and sing the classic Happy New Year song that everybody loves. <laughs> So I saw that this year there was a Witcher holiday log on Netflix that you could leave on. And we didn't review it, guys. We got to go back and review the holiday log. Oh, we better get in our time machine and make that happen. Oh, does Geralt talk about the real moral takeaway of the holiday season? No, it's just a fireplace. Oh, that makes cool. But I guess we'll have to review the Witcher holiday log next year. That's fair. And that means right now, it's time to summarize The Witcher Season 2, Episode 1, A Grain of Truth. Okay, so we open on Geralt and Ciri, you know... They're together, finally, from the end of the last season. And, thank God, Geralt has had time to give Ciri a little makeover, get the eyebrows, like, back to more of a natural color, kind of, uh, de-lighten the hair, (laughs) blondify, and and de-platinumize the hair. Darken, even. Yeah, darkening the hair a little bit, you know. Aging her a couple years. Yeah, you know, typical Witcher stuff. Exactly. And uh, they're kind of looking for Yennefer. They find out, oh, is she dead? They don't know. Maybe. I mean, Geralt certainly thinks so. Yeah. He's just like, oh, somebody said she's dead. I guess that's, fuck. Bummer. They were seeing the um, aftermath of the Battle of Sodden and talked to Tissaia for a hot sec before they bounced out of there to go on a journey toward Kaer Morin. <laughs> Just to say as line of, who are you to her? What, she didn't talk about me? Uh, oh, yeah, a little yeah. bit of jealousy Well, there. he didn't say that, but I like to imagine he was like, what? It's implied. <laughs> They're going to stop at a village to have a break on their journey, but they see it's abandoned, and Geralt's like, this is sussy. Let's go see my friend in the manor nearby. Oh, what the fuck? My friend is now a boar man. I mean, this, we've all been there. Big improvement. And he has magic powers. We've all been there. Turns out he did some shit in the past that was really terrible. He got cursed. And uh, he's living with, like, a vampire lady that's called a Bruxa or Bruxa or Bruxa or something like that. <laughs> Any one of those pronunciations is fine. One of them Brexits. I just forget <laughs> what they said in the episode already. Bruxa. Okay, that one. Delicious. Um, <laughs> Not a bruschetta. Oh. Siri kind of befriends her. She kind of feels some camaraderie with her for being different. Uh, but Geralt's like, you know what? She's a monster gotta do my job witcher's got a witch and we all know what happens next because witchers kill monsters and uh they leave his friend nivellin kind of sad there in the snow that his true love the evil demon was killed i mean arguably nivellin is a equally evil demon to verena right accomplice to demonism (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because she well, killed everybody in the nearby village and he turned a blind eye to it. But also he did some terrible things in his past that got him cursed. Exactly. Yes. Uh, And then Geralt and Ciri continue their journey because they're like, uh, dude, you're sussy and we don't want to hang out with you anymore. I think he's a little bit worse than sussy. Yeah. You are an outright monster. Monster. Imposter among us. <laughs> 
still relevant? No. (laughs) (laughs) But what's going on with that other person we mentioned earlier in the summary, Taseya? Well, after she's scouring the battlefield at the Battle of Sodden, she's looking through the last moments of the fallen soldiers to see what happened to her friend and student, Yennefer. Yes. Her friend of her. Her friend of her. <laughs> remember her? <laughs> I remember her. <laughs> I remember her. <laughs> yes. Yes. Perfect. And uh, she was the elfy one. Yeah. It's pretty killy. The memories of the dead people. You, you, you wouldn't be surprised by that. But, you know, she, she is disappointed by the results of all the soldiers' memories. And uh, lots of disturbing imagery she has to relive through that process as well. So she's very shaken, seeing countless deaths after a large battle, very costly battle, lost her student. 20,000 dead Nilfgaardians in that battle. It's true. So she ends up going to a place where there's a little less trauma, a hospital, a military (laughs) hospital. Slightly better? Where they're treating the wounded from the battle. She is walking along, listening to the sounds of crying out injured people. And one of the people screaming she goes to help is one of her other students, Triss. And it takes multiple high magi to stabilize her condition. It is at this point that the high-ranking council of magi, only a few members, decide on what to do with the leader of the Nilfgaardian troops, Cahil. He is in- <laughs> I'm sure they're going to do something very kind and friendly, right? Yeah. Well, one of them was considering that. However, the battle mage is always uh, up for the slightly more brutal methodology. And Taseya, having just lost a loved one and gone through trauma, is also down for the revenge (laughs) way to get answers. So they choose uh, brutality over uh, the justice system. (laughs) Brutality over hospitality. That's right. Oh, it rhymes, so you know it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Good prophecies rhyme. Geralt said it last season. Uh, It's true, it's true. That's an established thing in the setting. So then we cut to Tessaia in the cell with Cahil, and she starts to finger him until he screams. And uh, she starts... Not an uncommon (laughs) trait in the winter universe. Yeah, so she's sticking her fingers inside of his skull and brain. And uh, he's, he's like, crying out because he won't spill any Nilfgaardian secrets. And she's like, well, I know how to get them. (laughs) And she's like, you're going to be a prisoner in your own mind forever, but I'm going to get your secrets. (laughs) Better luck next time, kiddo. It's personal. (laughs) 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 yeah 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 Yeah, and then we just see him encountering a fate worse than death and then that's it (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty brutal yeah Saya pops off yeah she's not happy but meanwhile we as the audience are not left to think that yen is gone for very long, because during some cutaways throughout the episode, we actually see that Yennefer is alive and well, but being held... Ish. <laughs> I mean, she is healthful. Right. But she is being held captive in some anti-magic manacles by Fringilla, the Nilfgaardian mage who led the assault on Sodden that resulted in the deaths of... 20,000 Nilfgaardians and many thousands of other troops from the rest of the region and many other mages of the Brotherhood. And they were on this campaign at the behest of the king of Nilfgaard, who they referred to as the White Flame. And I was happy about that because I thought that was some, like, it is lore but I thought it was purely lore. I didn't realize they used that to refer to an actual person in the last season. And I thought that Cahill was the king, but he was the prince. Is he the prince? I thought he was just like a mercenary. No, he's part of the royal. Oh, wow. But, uh, yes. Well, as far as I understand it, I mean, it's kind of confusing, but I'm pretty sure he's the prince. But he could be a general. I mean, he's certainly somebody with high rank and a yeah. zealous outlook. 
And she was talking to him like he was a member of the royal family in the first season. So you're telling me they lose 20,000 troops and a member of the royal family? Talk about a blundered assault. Wah, wah. <laughs> so we only get a few short scenes with Yen and Frangilla, but it is mostly uh, both of them trying to convert the other one to their side. Frangilla's like, hey, the white flame is going to like rule the region. You might as well join us. Yen is like, yeah, right. We just basically obliterated your troops. You're going down. There's still time for you to, like, basically come back with your tail between your legs and beg the Brotherhood for forgiveness. You're going to be fucked if any of the other mages show up, so you might as well just give up. Your your troops are going to turn on you, basically, immediately. And she's like, hey, if you let me go, I can get a bunch of food, and then we can head out of here. But Fringilla's not really buying it. The last moments we see of them, all of the troops that they are with get speared and dragged away, and Frangilla and Yennefer are left back-to-back, getting ready for whatever assault is coming their way from the dark woods around them. And fade to black. Some old pals with a tense relationship are in a sticky situation. (laughs) How's this odd couple going to get out of this? Magic. It's going to be magic. Yeah, it's 200% going to be magic. (laughs) And that's what happens this episode. Why don't we head into the delve? Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of The Witcher, Season 2, Episode 1, A Grain of Truth. Well, guys, lots to talk about here already. We are coming out the gate very strong at the beginning of Season 2 with a episode that I think really encapsulates a lot of what The Witcher is about. We're getting the man is the real monster content that theme is continuing from the first season yeah yeah we're getting the deep moral ambiguity that kind of lets us know that there are no easy answers in this universe that things will never just wrap up nicely and cleanly yeah and we're dealing with heavy stuff we're dealing with destiny and punishment we're dealing with ptsd and the aftermath of war the feelings of isolation and discrimination that characters throughout the series go through. And we're talking about fear. Yeah. So let's get into all these great themes. So the apocalypse myth that is shared between Nivellin and Geralt is really interesting. Nivellin's trying to convince Geralt that it is the apocalypse or end of days, He, as he puts it, could be coming about. Because he, he cites a few things. A war between the North and South. And monsters roaming the land freely. And when they should be hibernating. And laying waste to villages. and <laughs> Including the monster in my attic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're kind of sharing some details between each other. Of what sh- must be a prophecy about the end of days. And Geralt, in his typically stoic and cynical fashion, is like, I've lived through three end of days. And, right. Or, or whatever, like multiple world-ending wars, like whatever. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I've lived through multiple cataclysms and, and apocalypse <laughs> <laughs> And the world's still here, so yeah. what are you going to do? He doesn't put a lot of stock in prophecy or destiny. Which is funny for a guy who literally is protecting Siri, who is his child of surprise. Well, she says when they're camping out together, Siri just kind of cynically asks him, so I'm your destiny then, huh? And he said, well, you're a lot more, you're so much more than that. Yeah. Now, see, I like the way that that dovetails with Geralt and Yen's relationship from previous season and, you know, presumably going forward. Where, you know, Yen is very angry at Geralt because she has been led to believe that the only reason that they are in love is because he used a Jin's wish 
to save her slash kind of bind their fates together. So she leaves him in season one kind of saying, you know, are, are, we're, I'm not going to be a slave to destiny and fate. Right. You know, I'll never know if I love you because I love you or if it's because our fates were bound together when you tried to save me. Through magic. Yeah. So it dovetails nicely with this story with Siri, where, you know, he's trying to say to her now, actually, it's not just because of this law of surprise. You're much more important. And like the connection we have is going to be more significant. And they're getting to know each other on this journey. Like they basically just met. They don't know much about each other. Yeah. And, uh, He's kind of finding out that she's playing some things close to the chest and then being a little bit too gregarious about other things with people she probably shouldn't be sharing information with so readily. And that probably speaks to her youth. Yeah, and also, like, she's coming out of kind of a harrowing series of events that got her to Geralt, such as her time with the Druidesses, her time with her friend Dara, the elf, that... Didn't end very well. Well, the trauma of losing her home and her loved ones and the tra- other traumas that she experienced on the road. Yeah. Too. And through this harrowing experience that they live through together, she comes to realize that she can trust him and his judgment. And he kind of comes to realize that he should open up to her a little bit more and share information with her a little bit more freely. Yeah. I mean, it's an important detail that. Geralt and Ciri have only been together for maybe a handful of days at this point. They're both coming off of some fairly traumatic experiences. Geralt almost died. Ciri was fleeing from, like Chelsea said, her collapsing kingdom. And she's still kind of clinging to hope that she could go back to some kind of life like that. And Geralt's like, yeah, no, if you go anywhere and anyone knows who you are, they are basically going to manipulate you and force you into situations that you're not going to like. Yes. But he is like open to talking to her about that stuff and like saying, okay, I'll take you there. But you know, this is probably what you can expect. Yeah. Like being married off to anybody. Lord bad breath. (laughs) (laughs) And part of series struggles in this episode are that she's trying to come to terms with her own power and she feels like an outsider and she kind of feels some camaraderie with Verena because of that and even when she sees her true nature as a brucia or whatever she still wants to kind of befriend her and doesn't want Geralt to hurt her uh, up to the point when, when Verena threatens Ciri's life then Siri's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, that, that changes a little bit. Maybe I made a mistake. <laughs> but she wants to believe that just because somebody's not human, they're not necessarily a monster. And we know throughout the series, and this episode really says it very explicitly, that humans are actually often the most dangerous monsters in this setting. And Verena says as much. Exactly. Because Siri says to her, monsters are bad things that hurt people. And Verena says, well, humans hurt everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yes. Well, that's a good moral for Siri to have, because that's sort of the moral that completely defines Geralt's character as well. Right. That the just because it seems bad doesn't mean it is. And just because, you know, it's good doesn't mean it it is that. Not everything is how it seems. It just so happens that she's younger and doesn't have the insight to differentiate that to the same degree he does. True. And also, we've seen, I think, multiple times in season one, Geralt is hesitant to use violence if he doesn't have to. It's not his preferred method, but oftentimes it is the only option he's left with. Yes. Like, we we see, even in this episode, like, he seems to be kind of bummed out that he has to kill Verena. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, he seems regretful. I mean, he is, you know, he's a witcher. He is so often called and treated as a monster. 
in in season one, he did whatever he could to spare non-human characters. Yeah. He tried to ally with the elves, you know, all these different things. He tried to emphasize to uh, the Lord of the Elves, you know, you should show the humans that you can live in unity with them and, and everything. Like, it is his preferred method to solve problems non-violently, but that is rarely an option at the end of any of his quests. And Verena does sow some doubt in Ciri's mind at the end, even after she's killed, she can still communicate with Siri telepathically and for a few moments and she says to her, he will come for you eventually, meaning Geralt. Presumably. I mean, it is a little pronoun gamey, but... <laughs> but uh, she doesn't know that Geralt befriends elves and we all know now that Siri has some elven heritage. Right. But I mean, yeah, I, I think Verena is kind of just making the, the point that violent men tend to create violent ends. And he was mainly trying to protect Ciri, and he said he'd never let harm come to her in the end. And she did seem to believe him. It made Ciri smile. Yes. I interpreted that that she wants to believe him. Maybe. I assume that that is going to be tested throughout the season. Most likely. Another thing I'd like to address, when it comes to things aren't what they seem, and sort of that moral goodness and character we were talking about earlier is the way true love shows itself in this episode oh yeah yeah big big part of this episode because so much like you know any uh true fantasy fairy tale true love is a big part of this it's true and we've seen in the first season the way true love is used to break a curse in the classic methodology siri brings it up how her father was the one whose curse was broken. Although when she says that, it's not clear if she knows that the hedgehog man was her father. Oh, that's right. It seems like no. That's right. But still, nonetheless, true love breaks the curse, right? Yes. And it's between two pretty much good characters. Yes. However, the character in this episode, whose name is Nivalon, his curse is of a very similar nature. He is a human-animal hybrid. Yes. And his curse is also broken by true love, which he has. However, throughout the course of this episode, we see that he is not a, like, morally, like, perfectly good, pure-hearted character. Far from it. Yeah. And the person-creature in which the true love is shared is definitely not a morally positive character, which means the implications of true love are fascinating in this world. And just so we're clear, it is Verena, the Brucia, who loves Nivalon. And murder. It's a selfish kind of love because she says, you know, I basically that I love you, and if I can't have you, then nobody else can when she's dying. Right. But so their relationship is such that because of Nivalon's curse, he can't actually be killed because a priestess cursed him to basically be a monster and unkillable until he finds true love. So she, as a Brucia, can feed on him every night and he just comes back. Yeah. However, it did not stop her from killing all the villagers. Just, you know, because just because you had dinner doesn't mean you don't want dessert. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Who wants to eat the same meal every day? You know? Oh, man. Burrito's oh, good, boy. but for every meal? <laughs> well, it'd be a sausage, right? Because he was a poor man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can't have hot dogs every day. Yeah, it's yeah. true. So she got a little killy. <laughs> but the point is, they fell in love. And... In the context of this world, which definitely has, like, some sentience to it with the ideas of destiny and love. Yeah. Still considered their love totally valid for curse breaking. It was like, hey, it's legit. It counts. Yeah, that means they did have true love. And that the monster was capable of love. Yeah. Which is right, fascinating. that is fascinating, right. Because normally you think of love as just being for good things. Yes, and Nivellon is not a good dude. They accepted each other for who they were, and neither of them cared what the other one was. Yeah. Or what they had done. 
He is not without goodness in him, but he's never stopped himself from being bad, it seems like. And she is capable of not just randomly killing things, because she doesn't harm Siri. Yeah, she seems, well, yeah, she doesn't want to, and she seems to like Siri until her life is being threatened, then she's more willing to I don't think she would have really done it. I think she would have to survive. Maybe. If she thought it was going to be the only way for her to get out, I think she would have killed Siri. But she was friends with Siri, and she said to her, I don't want to hurt you. Yeah. Yeah. But her self-preservation instinct was, I think, stronger. Well, also, so was her predatory instinct, because she said to Siri, don't run, I won't be able to stop myself. Right. And I don't want to hurt you. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Predator instinct. Yeah. We're we're already getting the complicated characters that I think we've all come to know and love from the show. I did start to feel something for the Brucia and I felt bad that it went the way it did, even though she had killed the villagers, which is terrible. And the travelers <laughs> and everything. Yeah. Like I wanted her to be able to have a chance to atone or get redemption or whatever. I don't know. Find friendship and realize oh, I don't have to be that way or whatever. Like, we saw from the first season that monsters, what are deemed as monsters, are capable of change. Yeah. The Striga from season one. Yeah. And like you just said, Jack, they're capable of love, and we see that she wants to befriend Ciri, so she's a complex being. It's true. And she is totally waifu. The way she can, like a possessed monster, climb on the ceiling and fit through coin-sized holes and has horrible, uncanny eyes and insect-like twitching movements. Yeah. And a voice that basically gets, like, auto-tune distorted. Yes, inside your brain. (laughs) Yeah, total Jack waifu. Yeah, she's perfect. (laughs) And, you know, um, Nivalon is also, you know, a complex character who is ashamed of what he's done. He doesn't admit to Geralt why he's actually cursed. He says it's because he wrecked the temple. He did something much worse than that. And that's why he's been cursed. Um, But he's lying to his friend. He doesn't want Geralt to know the truth. He's not, like, proud of his history. And it makes the ending of this episode very tragic. I know, and Siri and Geralt were down for helping him lift the curse, uh, but then after it was lifted, he admitted what was what he had done that really got him cursed, and that's when they leave and abandon him, and that's when he really they really see him as a monster. I was gonna say it is when he regains his human form. That Geralt and Ciri look at him like a monster. Because yeah. they know what he's done in his past. When he's a boar man, they're like, oh, Nivellon's great. He's this fun, silly guy who makes food fall from the sky and yeah. is kind of fun and like is giving us a cool place to stay. And, and you know, it's a little weird, but eh, we'll, we'll be fine. And then when they know his true backstory, then they give him the eye like, oh, this is a terrible human being and we have to leave here and go basically sleep in the cold because we cannot trust him. Yeah. He always, to me, was like a friendly, fun guy, but seemed like there was a dangerous unpredictability about him. Yeah. Like, he was friendly, but there was that- Threatening. There was like a side of him you could tell he wasn't showing that was like, dangerous to you (laughs) yeah Yeah, he was intentionally hiding things from them and that made it like yeah he's like verena yeah and he's unpredictable himself like jack is saying like you can't totally trust him like he'd be the kind of person where you could have a good conversation with him and then leave saying i didn't like that (laughs) yeah you just feel sticky when you walk away yeah 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 very very well portrayed That character. He was honestly one of the most compelling characters I think we've seen in the show so far. Yeah. And he is also a true monster. Yes. But so another thing that comes up a lot in this episode is 
the aftermath of war and I would say PTSD, like how people are dealing with horrendous trauma and the impact that it's going to have on them for years to come, if not for the rest of their lives. It's true. Like with Siri and Geralt, their response is to move on and face their fears to find a path to heal. Right. And to get stronger. And they it's kind of treated as a new beginning for them, even as they're feeling that pain and they are mourning and, and grieving for their losses. But then with someone like Tisea, her response is to the, that loss and trauma and her, in her grief, she lashes out and hurts someone else and continues the cycle of violence. Yeah, I was going to say, she basically starts committing horrendous violence as a response to literally just yesterday having been part of a massive casualty-ridden battle. Yeah. Yeah, there's that scene in the hospital, basically, where there are the three council members. There's the battle mage, the, like, higher up in the council in Tissaia, and the the one mage is saying... That's Fringilla's uncle, by the way. Yes. He's saying, uh, there's, like, a way we do this. Let's not be hasty. And they're yeah. like, uh, and the battle mage is like, oh, I can get answers out of him real quick. Yeah, we're actually going to be super hasty. And he's the one who had the battle with Cahill in right. the second it's to true. last episode or the last episode of the first season. And, like, lost to him. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Taseo was saying, I can get the answers out of him real quick, and I'm going to do it. And the and the guy from the Mage Council said, well, guys, there's, like, sort of morality and a system that we have for this sort of thing. And the Battle Mage was like, you know, she didn't actually ask. Yeah. She's, yeah. Like, she's telling you she's going to do it. And it was sort of like them standing, like they were flexing on him, like it's two against one. What you gonna do about it? And he was like, "I guess nothing." <laughs> and the battle mage, after he said that, he looked to to say and like gave her a grin and a nod. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. It's kind of sick. It's kind of sickening, but. Well, to see justice thrown away, but it, yeah. it's sort of like yeah. ethical treatment. Versus getting results, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like how democracy take, doesn't do anything and how totalitarianism gets everything. <laughs> oh, jeez. I'm trying to remember. Um, <laughs> after Vilgefortz lost to Cahill last season, didn't he like end up attacking one of his own troops and just murdering one of their their own warriors sounds familiar yeah he was like possessed or something but then that never went anywhere i was wondering what happened with that because suddenly he seems fine now. yeah i was really surprised that he was there i'm wondering though if that is not going to be something that gets carried on what do you mean like i'm wondering if we're going to see more of what happened there at the end of that fight with Cahill that we just haven't revealed yet Right, because let's not forget that there's that fucking doppelganger out there somewhere. Isn't he oh, is he dead? still? I think he died, didn't he? Did he? Boy, we're gonna have to rewatch season one. <laughs> we will find out. But soon. yeah, after I mean, unless the doppelganger had taken the form of Vilgefortz, and that's why he attacked somebody. Boy, it's been a while. It's hard to say. He could still be under control and like a sleeper agent. Or he could be the doppelganger. Yeah. But it was fascinating to see the way that when people are traumatized after these tense situations. Yeah. The way they will very quickly toss aside the morals that they worked for as a society. Yeah. Immediately after a conflict, right? Or it shows their true nature. Yeah. Because to say it claims to not be bloodthirsty and to not want to do this but that's not true because she's totally down to just hurt this guy and we've seen her turn students into eels push them in the lake with the rake but that's just <laughs> that's just the standard operating procedure at Eratusa. 
Yeah. And she submits them all to horrible pain during the training and everything. She's totally down to hurt other people. Yeah, then she let, like, the one spell backfire on the girl and, like, wither her hands. Yeah, and didn't warn her at all. And, like, basically was gonna let Yennefer get killed by lightning. It was all just to prove a point to them. (laughs) Classic teaching methods. So she's always been willing to teach hard lessons and cut corners. Yeah. It sort of was refreshing to see a character, however, the mage being like, hey guys, this isn't okay. Yeah. Because we don't get a ton of characters like that in the show. It's true. Yeah. It was nice to see someone trying to stand up for like, hey, ethical treatment of prisoners. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, I'm going to put my finger in his brain. Also, I thought it was impactful to actually sit with the discomfort of seeing the aftermath of the battle. I agree. I thought that was really good. I thought that was some good visual storytelling. It was like, this is horrendous. This is something terrible what happened. And it's not to be overlooked. Yeah. Yeah, in this episode, we're already seeing that we're not going to shy away from the awful truce and the brutality of war and conflict. And seeing that it leaves profound psychological scars on the people who are a part of it. It seems to have, like, kind of broken Fringilla, too. Like, Yes, good point. She's always been kind of low on self-confidence. And she had this bravado when she was leading the army. And now she's kind of back to her old self. Like, she's arguing with Yennefer. But But it's very half-hearted. Yeah. And she seems very dejected. I mean, that she just lost a major battle. And she claims, like, the war isn't over yet. But Yen is also like, I just kicked your ass so hard. She's no longer very, like, as zealous and... She seems less self-righteous around the troops and more bossy with them. Yeah. And then Yennefer actually shows some compassion for Fr- for Fringilla, even though they're, like, trading insults. She kind of goes between that and trying to, like, reach Fringilla and feel some camaraderie with her. So that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of having this philosophical debate about what a mage's role is. Fringilla's talking about how the mages were sent off to just wherever the Brotherhood wanted them to go to satisfy the Brotherhood's ends and motives, and they had no care for the individuals. They, it was like the council wants their power, and they get it by sending mages out to every kingdom but they know that they're controlling those mages, and therefore they're kind of controlling the politics. Right. But Yennefer wants to stay out of that whole cycle. And she seems to think that since she had to, to say as blessing to unleash chaos, pure chaos in the form of fire magic on the troops, that she's going to be lauded as a hero. Frangilla points out that she committed a major taboo right. against the rules and laws of the Brotherhood. A real party foul. Mm-hmm. And that she's basically trying to convince Yen that she committed a war crime. Right. Because she used basically a weapon of mass destruction on people that had no hope of any kind of defense. It was so one-sided. There was nothing the other troops could have done about that. Yeah. And there's no right side in a war. But what Yen did could be conceived of as a war crime in the right perspective. Yeah, totally. Then again, they were all just going to kill each other in in the end. (laughs) And Yennefer claims that they were stopping the Nilfgaardian army from their reign of terror and just their campaign to dominate the North. But Fringilla says... We were coming to liberate everyone. Right. And Very different perspectives. They're both basically quoting propaganda at each other. Yeah. And I think they both believe their own side. Because there's something that has to do with their religion in Nilfgaard, their new religion that has to do with the white flame, where they believe that like there's more than the mortal realm and that the people that are killed are like 
go to some undead realm where they are still existing and stuff. We still don't know everything that they believe in because they're playing it pretty close to the chest. And we haven't gotten it from their perspective yet fully. Right. But yeah. they, they do believe in some kind of life after death. So they think they're liberating people from the mortal coil, I think. And that's part of how they justify their campaign. Yes. Yes. I once said in a conversation thread online that war is bad. In Whoa. which case, people got very upset and said, typical pacifist bullshit. And so you're saying the Jews should have let Hitler kill them. And to which I said, uh, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> But I still stand by what I said, and so I think the show is very brave for saying war is bad, considering people apparently really like it. <laughs> or they really dislike when you dislike it. <laughs> yeah, it's one or the other, right? Yeah, I think just don't say it online. If you say it to someone face-to-face, -face, they'll be like, yeah, it's bad. Yeah, but Jack, you just said it online. I, hi there, listener. <laughs> Please agree with me. <laughs> I beg you. Normally, I'm okay with you having your own opinion, but please agree that war is bad. <laughs> I'm gonna put in my, I'm gonna put my hot take out there. <laughs> Please agree. <laughs> well, before we move on, there's just one more thing I want to talk about for this episode, and it's the theme of isolation and discrimination that is repeated throughout the series and in this episode in particular, we're getting a lot of characters talking about the, their own feelings of isolation or their history of being discriminated against, or we're seeing characters who are dealing with some form of isolation or another. Like Yen has been cut off from Geralt and, well, that was kind of intentional, but like from the other mages of the brotherhood, Siri, isn't alone exactly, but she's with Geralt, who she doesn't really know, and she she wishes she could go back to her family and community. She asks Nivellon about, like, if there was a way to turn back time and to undo what's happened in the past, that she would want to do that. Because she's used to being around, like, a castle full of people that kind of were at her beck and call. He also said he wanted to undo his past. Because he's super ashamed of what he's done. Yeah. Yeah. And he's living in isolation, basically. He's living with Verena, who they have this really, I'm going to say, toxic love affair going yeah. on. Their relationship puts a big strain on his social life. <laughs> yes, it does. And so does his guilt and his curse, which makes him look monstrous. So we know the people of this world are not going to except him, Geralt and Ciri aren't really too put aback by Nivellon's boar appearance, other than the fact that, like, he initially attacks them. But as soon as he stops fighting, they're like, oh, yeah, we're cool. But yeah. most people in this world would not be like that. Nivellon is the type of person who, the like, local townspeople probably would have paid someone like Geralt to kill if they'd had the opportunity. That is true. And uh, his initial assault on Geralt and Ciri is a little more troubling when you hear that he killed all of his servants after right. he got his curse. So he's probably used to just initiating violence, but who knows how people reacted to his new appearance as well. Yeah, it's all we All we heard was that he killed them and he's ashamed of it, but... They they might have been horrified by him. He, his self-esteem is so low. I mean, he's done a lot of bad things, but his self-esteem is so low that he might be shouldering the entire blame for self-defense in that situation as yeah. well. We, we He's a very biased narrator, so who knows how bad the bad things he's done are. He did some bad things, which are just black and white bad. Right. But uh, in some instances, it's like, well, does he have that violent reaction because he's used to people trying to kill him? Right. Yeah, he might, he might have come back to his house and his servants might have attacked him. I mean, and based. It's true. Living the American dream by trying to kill your boss. It's true. Another <laughs> thing is he could be attacking people to try to defend his love. 
as well. Right, because Verena is a something of a monster, you know, in, in some perspectives. She is a vampire, effectively, who eats people for sustenance. Yeah. So it's sort of complicated. He definitely does bad things, but also I don't think he would ever admit that he did something for a good reason. He seems like the kind of guy to just say, oh, I did it, so it's bad. Right. Um, so furthermore, you know, Yen is isolated by basically being a prisoner to Fringilla and the Guardians. Fringilla is way more isolated than she's used to being because she's used to leading an army and being the king of Nilfgaard's, like, mage. Court mage. Court mage. Like, she is... She has lost her entire retinue of soldiers that she was leading. And in the end, she's isolated with Yennefer, so she doesn't have the soldiers to fall back on to help keep Yen in check. We know Yen's going to get loose. (laughs) You can't contain Yen. She is a creature of pure chaos. I mean, that might be enough to get her out of these anti-magic gauntlets or whatever, the the shackle she's in. I mean, I'm guessing that Fringilla is going to have to let her out so that they can fight together. That or Yen might find a mechanical way out of them. Yeah. I just can't wait for them to team up and be badass mages, fall in love, hook up, and... uh, (laughs) That's the most important part, the Jack. And then, then, you know, who knows? Who knows what happens after that? But if if Yennefer is going to get back with Geralt, I don't see it ending well for Fringilla in that situation. Going to say it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure that things are going to end well for Fringilla because she is on the side of Nilfgaard, who are imperialistic, lunatic uh, zealots. What, you think just because she's a totalitarian and red-pilled that she's not going to, that something bad is going to happen to her? Uh I mean, maybe. We'll see. Yen seems to think, like, she's redeemable because they're so long-lived. Yes. That they might do many different things during their many centuries of life. And she's like, the Brotherhood will take you back. I'll vouch for you. Like, let's just get out of here. Like, basically, none of these people and their petty squabbles matter. We will outlast all of them. Right. Yen is kind of like playing the long game right now. Yeah. And Fringilla is so used to being like pushed to the side by the Brotherhood. And she feels like important in the Nilfgaardian kingdom that she doesn't want to like just betray them. Right. It's a war crime today. It's just political debate tomorrow. It's who knows how culture will change. At the same time, Fringilla is known within the Brotherhood and with those who have worked with her in the past that she's kind of pliable and kind of follows the rules and is easy to control. Plus, her uncle is a high-ranking mage. Like, he could probably uh, throw in a good word for her. Well, yeah, but she says, like, I'm not going to betray my kingdom and abandon my post. Like, she's very duty-bound. Oh, yeah, As absolutely. Because she gets power from the zealots of Nilfgaard who are who are using her, but she feels more autonomous while she is kind of on this zealots campaign. Whether she really believes in it or not is up for debate. She has some measure of power, but Yennefer is trying to convince her that it's fleeting, basically. Yeah. She and her uncle... Both have that in common, that they really enjoy the rules structure. Yeah. He's the one who's trying to fight to support it for the prisoner treatment. Yeah. And she's the one who is sort of duty-bound to a fault to a dictator. Right. (laughs) So, they have that in common, at least. Yeah, it's true. For opposite sides, albeit. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's so many angles to everyone's motives in this show. Mm-hmm. And in this world, in, in all the fiction of this world, so. It's true. All right, guys, well, on that note, I think we can head into final thoughts. All right, we've launched in to season two of one of our favorite shows. Any final thoughts before we say goodbye to our lovely listeners? Geralt Handsome. 
<laughs> Absolutely. You know, there was a lot of Geralt butt in season one, and I I didn't see I didn't see a single not even a single scene of Geralt butt. Not even like a Not even a cheek. Not even a one second flash, just a one frame. You're like, whoa, whoa. They're that? holding out. They're holding out. He already talked about how he's wanting to get new armor in this episode. So there's gonna be a costume change at some point when they get the Caramoran. Yes. I'm looking forward to the blossoming of different unlikely friendships. Ooh, my favorite type. Yeah, there's Yennefer and Fringilla and Geralt and Ciri. While they're kind of bound to each other, their personalities are pretty different. Yes. Uh, I will bring up that someone has been missing this entire episode. Yes, yes. they have. Jaskier, our That's favorite right. character. I know. Who's not Geralt or Siri or I mean we 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 like a lot of characters. But come on, he's a bard, guys. So that means we know what he's doing. He's out there singing those songs. Yes. Oh, I thought you were gonna say he's fucking. Oh yeah, that too. I was yeah. thinking that. Yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Bard's got a bard. Yeah. And by that I mean fuck. I mean he's been Furthering his career, you know? Remember when he washed Geralt's butt with incense water? That was hype. Perfume water? That was the best. <laughs> that happened in season one. Yeah. When he's like, we're friends, and Geralt's like, I never said we were friends. He's like, so you let just anyone wash your butt with <laughs> incense water? And Geralt was like, hmm. <laughs> I guess you got a point there. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're bosom companions. They are. But they're... right now they're estranged. I mean, Geralt is taciturn, to say the least. Ooh. He pushes people away. When he was young and being trained to be a witcher, they taught him to bottle up his emotions. So he Never a good idea, by the way, listeners. No. So they he kind of lashes out when he's in pain or clams up. Yes. And he has a hard time feeling connections with people. I'm assuming that as we work through season two, Siri is going to help him develop stronger relationships. And, and maybe more positive ones. And more emotional intelligence. Right. We know that it's not true that witchers are devoid of emotion. They're taught to have a form of limiting masculinity because uh, they are all male. That's right. The other thing is, uh, Geralt expresses that he is experiencing heartbreak at the loss of Yennefer in this episode. Yeah, that's right. You cannot witness it by looking at him, but you can tell. <laughs> it reminds me of the woman on The Simpsons who's, who's like, though my face hasn't changed, I can assure you that inside I'm weeping <laughs> or whatever. Well, he was grimacing an awful lot. Yes. I mean, that's nothing new, but fair enough. He almost got misty-eyed. Very nearly. Yeah. A single tear molecule evaporated from his eye. Before it could form, but we knew <laughs> it was there. But yeah, I mean, we know that Geralt's not an emotionless, cold dude. He's just... Yeah, like Chelsea said, very bottled up because that's how he was trained. Yep. Yeah. But we also have now, after watching Nightmare of the Wolf, seen Geralt as a small, scared child. Yeah. Yeah. So we know that there's a lot more complexity here. And his mentor, what's his name again? Vesemir. Was more of a gregarious, fun-loving guy who did show more emotion. So yeah. it's possible that because of the loss of most of their kin, he trained Geralt and the other few surviving young witchers to be in a very different way. Yeah. Well, also, Vesemir always had community. True. He always had that father figure mentor. He always had friends that went through the similar trauma where Geralt has always been on his own. Yeah, and I think the fall of Kaer Morhen that we saw in Nightmare of the Wolf really has defined the Witchers since Vesemir's time. Yeah. And kind of defined... Vesemir's trauma that we saw in Nightmare of the Wolf probably helped define his relationship to his students. Yeah. That's and Geralt what I was, is one of his students. That's yeah. what I was getting at, too. And it's like, that trauma is generational. Right. 
And you know what? I also want to say, before we wrap up here, I'm really excited for this next episode because it's called Caramoran. Yeah. And I'm really excited to see what's going on at the old Witcher school. Me too. Me too. But I guess you, fair listener, will have to wait two weeks to know our thoughts about that one. So prepare your hearts. And your ear holes. And your credit card number for our Patreon plug. That's right. If you go to patreon.com slash swords and satire and you have the means, you can join one of our tiers and become a supporter of the show. We would really appreciate it. You'd help us keep the torches lit here at Castle Satire. And you also get access to cool bonus episodes and you could vote on the movies we watch each month. That's right, but if you don't have a few extra coins to toss at your Witcher, you can always tell your friends and family about Swords and Satire, watch the media that we watch, and enjoy the episodes together. You can uh, sing along to cats, you can, you can <laughs> poop. If you listen to our podcast while you're on the toilet, I mean, you're living the life, I think. But uh, It's the dream. Yeah. But the, probably the best way to support the show is to show it to people you like. And whether you support us on Patreon or just love listening every week, you can always follow us on social media, at Swords and Satire, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Keep up with our episodes, check out our memes, and hit us up with your thoughts about the shows and movies we talk about. That sounds awesome. I'm hyped. But until next time... Hail Crom!